This is a one-day session, one-day sitting here uh, in the Zendo, and we have a full house. It's uh, a lot of people, and also quite a number of uh, newer people, or at least people that uh, I don't know. I wish, I hope that I will get to know them, get to know you. And then there's a good crowd of people out there uh, online. Yes. We are. I thought we were recording. Let's see. Yes, we are. We are recording. Okay. Thank you. The voice from beyond. <laughs> That's, you know, in. Uh, Japanese Buddhism, you have self-power schools of Buddhism and other power schools of Buddhism. That was just the other power. <laughs> Actually, that was the other power in my household. That was Lori. <laughs> so, um, since I've spoken to you last, uh, I have a book that's come out, uh, which I'm going to speak from. It's published by Shambhala. It's called Turning Words, Transformative Encounters with Buddhist Teachers. I'm not sure if it's backwards to you online or it's, it's okay. Uh, anyway, uh, these are basically things that I've heard or seen or encountered over uh, the number of decades of practice and it includes people who are actually in this room, uh, people who are online, uh, people who used to, like Zojin, who used to occupy this seat, uh, and stories about actual encounters with them. So I'm going to speak from, from two of them and weave them together uh, for you. Uh, today as a, a way of really encouraging the depth of your practice, both uh, your practice here in Seshin, uh, but more broadly the function of our practice, which is to harmonize our lives and harmonize the world uh, it's not just about what happens in this room, although this room is a really good place to, to practice and to encounter ourselves. So the first story um, I'm going to read it and then maybe interject some things. Uh, So in the autumn of 1992, about 40 of us, mostly from across Asia, took the night train from Bangkok to Chiang Mai, uh, freezing all night in the excessively air-conditioned train, eventually arriving in a northern city at dawn. Vans took us to Wat Umong, which is called the Tunnel Temple at the foot of Doi Sutep to the west of the city. This was my first trip to Thailand and the first international network of engaged Buddhist conference that I had gone to. Uh, the friends that I traveled with and that I've met there have been my close Dharma brothers and sisters, 
ever since. So it's gone back more than 30 years. An aging monk, diminutive and somewhat androgynous, took center stage in his orange robes. He spoke briskly in low tones. The smile on his face was audible. This was the first time I had heard Mahagosananda, the Cambodian patriarch in, I, in uh, exile, first time I had heard him teach. Later, I met Bhante Gosananda numerous times throughout the 1990s, both at uh, conferences and in the Bay Area. Uh, Bhante Gosananda traveled alone, and his students and supporters often did not know where he was or where he was going. <laughs> uh, from time to time, sometimes someone would call and ask if I'd seen Bhante. Uh, we think he's headed to San Francisco. Uh, and he would show up in a day or two, completely calm, laughing easily, walking and floating about two inches above the ground, always moving forward. So back to Chiang Mai in 1992. Mahagosananda made himself comfortable sitting on stage. He beamed at the assembly and asked, what is the most important thing? He called on young monks and on elders, on INF notables. Uh, and it occurs to me, uh, why don't I do that? What's the most important thing? Does someone want to if you if you know the answer from the story, don't don't say it. But uh, please uh, raise your hand and tell me what you think the most important thing is. Come on, and Dan. To be thoroughly present. Thank you, Susan. Showing up. Showing up, Kavir. Your breath. Your breath. Uh, Lumen's heart. Compassion. Compassion. Anyone online? I was saying. Yeah, go ahead. Love. Love. Okay. Anyone else in here? Try. I might say every answer. He would, this is what he would do. <laughs> and there were some very senior practitioners in there, senior monks and nuns. Anyone else? Yeah, Sue. Uh, lunch. Lunch. Okay. Couple online, Phil and Carol. Oh, yeah, I can see. Uh, Philip. Um, the present moment. The present moment. And Ron. I was going to say exactly what Phil said. Now. Now. Okay. Anyone else? Carol, go ahead. Okay. Uh, follow your inner voice. Follow your inner voice. Good. These are really good. Not right, but they're really good. <laughs> Not right according to Mahagosananda. Your, your original self. The original self. Wait, that's your second answer, right? So make up your mind. <laughs> so uh, each person there threw out a good answer, and each was met with a disappointed nod of the head. This went on for 20 minutes. It was a long time. Uh, and finally, Bonte said, Sue got the closest. The most important thing is eating. <laughs> Just take that in for a moment. I'm, I'm going to explain more. So, Mahagosananda wrote a little book, which I don't know if it's still in print. Uh, it was 
uh, it's called Step by Step, and Parallax Press uh, published it years ago, actually, I think 1993. Uh, and Ma Bosananda explains, life is eating and drinking through all of our senses. And life is keeping from being eaten. What eats us? Time. What is time? Time is living in the past or living in the future, feeding on the emotions. This is the pivotal sentence to me. Beings who can say they are mentally healthy for even one minute are rare in this world. Beings who can say they are mentally healthy for even one minute are rare in this world. Most of us suffer from clinging to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings, and from hunger and thirst. Most living beings have to eat and drink every second through their eyes, ears, nose, tongue, skin, and nerves. We eat 24 hours a day without stopping. We crave food for the body, food for feeling, food for volitional action, and food for rebirth. We are what we eat. We are the world and we eat the world. So, um, we're always eating. This is the nature of our mind. It's never without some activity, some taking in, whether it's thinking or feeling. And usually, in some subtle sense, we're driven by time. So today, you know, we're sitting here and we're in a timeless space. And yet, I doubt there's one person in this room that has not spent or will not spend a, mo a moment at least thinking, when is the bell going to ring? You know, when is this going to stop so I can go on and do something else? Often we think, you know, we come here in some peculiar way because we understand this is really important and wonderful to do. And then we get here and we often think like, oh, this is really hard. I, I wish I could have some time for myself. <laughs> As if this wasn't time for yourself. Who else is it for? Who else would do this crazy thing? So we are the world, and we eat the world. And I'm not going to extend that metaphor out, but um, you could say, and we excrete the world. Time is also an eater. In traditional Cambodian stories, there's often a giant with many mouths who eats everything. That giant is time. If you eat time, you gain nirvana. You can eat time by living in the moment. 
When you live just in this moment, time cannot eat you. This is actually the practice of Sashin. It's living moment by moment. But be very careful. This is another story in the book. Uh, you can't stay in that moment. Once I kind of offhandedly wrote something in a column, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship where I was working. And, uh, you know, just offhandedly as we do, I said something like about uh, stay in the present. And uh, the teacher, uh, Nelson Foster, who's a Zen teacher at Ring of Bones Endo in the foothills of the Sierras, uh, he called me up as soon as he got his magazine. And he said, you cannot stay anywhere. And this is what you will discover as we sit here. It's hard to see in the course of our so-called regular life because things are moving real fast, because there's, there are so many multiple stimuli and things, uh, things that we have to deal with, things that we have to take care of. And so uh, sometimes the busyness, which is time, is eating us. But here, when things slow down a little bit, then we get to see the complexity of our internal life. And we try to simplify a little. We try to slow it down so that it's not so that I would say it's not that so time isn't eating us, but also not that we're we're not eating time. We're just we're actually walking side by side. We're walking along in this ever moving moment. And so we're in time. I often For some reason, uh, I think about uh, a song title. I often think of, of things in terms of song titles, uh, but the song title that comes to mind uh, for me right now is Just in Time, I found you just in time Until you came, my time was running low it's a great song. I was lost, losing dice were tossed. My bridges all were crossed, nowhere to go. Just in time. This is our objective, if you will. To move through this world just in time, side by side. And we do this you know, the wonderful thing about this practice is that uh, we do it together. No one is alone doing this. So, as we sit here this morning, uh, and in every morning, in every afternoon, we sit side by side, just in time. And we support each other, which is very important because there's a condition of our world. There's a condition of our world that often leads us to feel alone. And that's the hardest feeling, is to be alone. Uh, and I think that part of 
the form of the practice is actually to manifest not aloneness, to actually support each other. We have somebody sitting on either side of us. Uh, and even though they're in their own life, they're in their own thoughts, they're in their own body, uh, there's a commonality of effort and intention that's mutually supportive. And so we're just in time with each other. We're just in place with each other. Some of us feel we really, at a certain point in our life, uh, we, we kind of move from the stage of feeling sort of immoral to having a more acute sense of our mortality and age. And I'm not saying this to be depressive, it's just like, I've come to this, I'm sure a lot of us have, and some of you are fortunately young, and like, don't worry about it, you know, it'll, you'll, you'll get to that stage when you, when you need to, but, um, It gives us a different perspective on time and a different perspective on eating. What do we take into, what are the elements, what are the things that feed us and what are the things that we consume that make us feel ill, ill in our body, ill in our mind. Breathing is connected. Breathing is a kind of eating, also, of course. And now we actually have to think about what is the environment? What is the air that we're breathing? What are we doing to it? How are we toxifying it by other things that we and people are eating? So I'm not proposing that eating is necessarily the most important thing. Everything that you said was really important to you at this moment. And that's the truth right there. Uh, well, what I really appreciated about Mahagosananda is that He was always ready to throw you off balance, to make you think of things from a different angle. The other thing I, I want to say about him is that he was, he was a remarkable person that uh, he spoke 13 languages. Uh, it happens that he was in retreat in Thailand when um, the Khmer Rouge took over Cambodia during the 70s. And the small number of monks who were outside the country survived. And inside Cambodia, three quarters of the monks were killed and the rest were forced to disrobe. So when he returned to his country, there was no monastic order. And his vision was, sometimes we think of Theravada Buddhism as uh, 
we think of it as Hinayana, you know, the lesser vehicle or the, the kind of personal vehicle, but everything he did was for the entirety of his society. And he got this idea in the 80s after being in exile that he was just going to go to the border and walk across the country. And a walk across the country in the, in the midst of uh, a terrible repression. And that's what he did. And everywhere he went, he was met with love. And interestingly, he was met with the respect from the Khmer Rouge. So you had this guy who was uh, he was just the kind of the, the lightest, most ephemeral kind of presence that you can imagine. Uh, once he came to visit and he wanted to give me some money that I was supposed to pass to someone else and he was in my office at BPF and he had these robes on. He looked kind of substantial in his robes, but the money was like in the most innermost robe. And he kept peeling off these layers of robes. And it was like, I was afraid he was going to get to the end and there was going to be nothing there. <laughs> uh, but with this ephemerality, there was also some steel that led him forward. And he led, for quite a number of years, he led an annual <clears throat> Dharma Yetra, Dharma walk, uh, beginning in 1992. Actually, beginning at that INEP conference. I wish that had gone on, on them. I knew many people who did. Uh, and they just, they walked across. They walked through Cambodia when it was still in the hands of the Khmer Rouge. Uh, and twice they got caught in crossfire. Once, one of the, the Japanese monk who was with them on the walk actually got killed. And another time, uh, a group of people, including a number of people that I knew from INEV, were uh, held captive by the Khmer Rouge and Mahago Sananda had to go met with them, talk with them and talk with the Khmer Rouge and, and got their got his their release. So there was no passivity in his vision. come back to that, uh, that sentence. Beings who can say they're mentally healthy for even one minute are rare in the world. This is a challenge to us. How can we do that? And I'm going to just tell briefly one other story from this that's, that's in the book, because I think it's, it's relevant. And it happened uh, here in the Zendo. Uh, and I've told this story. I tell these stories. You've probably heard them before. This is an embarrassing function of getting older. Uh, maybe it's like, this is my dharma, so I'm teaching it, so maybe that's good. The other thing is, maybe I'm just repeating myself and I'm in a rut. I don't know. Uh, this was in, uh, this must have been in 1989, on a weekday evening. The zendo was full. Sojin Roshi was in his abbot seat. 
and Master Sheng Yan lectured from the teacher's seat. Uh, Master Sheng Yan, uh, at that point we're just knowing about him. He just had published his first books and also I think this was, I think maybe Ron had set up the event uh, because Ron had been going to Sashin, uh, some Sashins with Master Shengen in Elmhurst, New York. Uh, as is often the case then and now, I have no recollection of his talk. And to be honest with you, often I don't even remember my own talk, uh, although some of them were somewhat written down, so I have notes. Uh, it was followed by questions and answers from the gathered students. Uh, Laurie asked one of those archetypal Zen questions. What is the most important thing for a lay practitioner to remember? So that's like the question that Mahagosananda asked us. And Master Shenyan said, regulate your life. This reminds me of a Zen dialogue from China's Tang Dynasty. Old man Joshu asked Master Nansen, what is the way? Nansen replied, ordinary mind is the way. And this comes full circle. Nansen is telling Joshu to regulate his life, to put it in order, to make it ordinary. And I think that this is the effort that we all, uh, this is where we should apply our effort. So I think I'm going to stop there and leave time for comments or questions and uh, it's almost time so you can think about lunch. What are you going to eat? Uh, and uh, I'm interested in know, knowing how, what your reflections or questions are about this. So uh, people online can raise your digital hands and people here can raise your actual hands. Don't be shy. Yes, Devin. I'm wondering, the first story you told of the teacher, it seems like the life you led was far from ordinary. So I'm wondering how those stories and practices are impacted. Well, that's interesting. Uh, you mean Mahagosananda? Yes. Uh, Couldn't quite hear it. Yes, oh, I'm sorry, thank you. Uh, the question was, uh, it seems that uh, Mahagosananda's life was far from ordinary, so how do you put that together? Um, I think that there's ordinary from the external and there's ordinary from the internal. And the ordinary, the application of ordinary to somebody like Mahagosananda is uh, really his mantra was step by step and that's the ordinary that's the ordinary dimension of just uh, just placing one step in front of another uh, and in that sense moving forward but moving forward in a in a deliberate not in a hasty way uh, and in a regulated way. That's my understanding. Uh, he was never in a rush. He really uh, had this remarkable presence and humility. So ordinary, for example, you know, there's ordinary and there's extraordinary. So the ordinary thing I remember I once went with 
a friend to see him uh, as in the Garadama Temple, which is a, a Cambodian monastery, which is actually a house way out in the avenues in San Francisco. And he was in town. <clears throat> the two of us were there along with him. And the ordinary thing is that he was the supreme patriarch of Cambodia, that we would make tea for him, right? Just as a matter of protocol, we would serve our elder. But he sat us down and went out in the kitchen and brewed up a pot of tea and came and served us. So that was, I don't know if it's the ordinary ex manifesting as the extraordinary or the extraordinary manifesting as the ordinary. But this ordinariness is really, to me, this is a very precious quality. I think it's a quality that our late teacher Sojin had. Uh, he was remarkably ordinary. You know, there wasn't a lot of, there was no flash. You know, he wore, I'm wearing one of his patrobe robes. Uh, and this is an experience I've had, you know, I had with Mahagosananda. I've, with people that I've met who are um, profound and important teachers to us, very often they have a quality of ordinariness and directness that uh, is something I value incredibly much. So that's a longer answer to your question. Yes, Chloe. The concept of being in time is really interesting and it seems to imply maybe there needs to be something that keeps time mm. to be time. What is, I guess, okay. what does maybe I'm just yeah. so Chloe is saying that the question of being in time implies that there is something that keeps, keeps time, right? Yeah. Right. So, uh, you have to walk to the beat of your own drummer. You know, uh, in time to me is you know, it's interesting, and I, I talk about this, this is a metaphor that I talk about often in terms of playing music, that um, if you don't have a drummer, the musics that I play don't have drummers usually, it's acoustic folk-based folk music, uh, which means that every individual is the drummer. Every individual has to keep time, and every individual has to be just in time with the other people. Uh, and that, of course, is conditional upon the piece of music that you're playing. So what the right pace is, there's no fixed right pace. There's just what is appropriate. What's the most important, that's another koan, what's the most important thing? It's uh, another most important thing. Or what is the, what is the, meaning of the Buddha's lifetime of teaching. I think that's the verse. And the Master answers, an appropriate response. An appropriate response means being just in time. Thank you. Anyone out there? Um, oh, Karen. Hi. Hi, Hosan. Thank you for this wonderful talk. It was a great reminder. The part I want to talk about is how uh, is lunch, is food, and how, what a great reminder, how beautifully you uh, talked about all the ways we eat. It's really helpful. Um, I remember learning about um, Gurdjieff's teaching of the importance of the impression food we give ourselves. Mm what we let in the sense gates. And it just is 
very strong reminder that we have more agency with what we eat that we should um, take good care of anyway. I just, I really appreciated that part, all, the whole thing, but that's a good reminder. Um, yeah, thank you for that. I think, yeah, um, you heard that? I think one of the things that I've noticed is that whether it's food or uh, culture or sensory input, my appetite is different than it was. And my appetite keeps changing. The things that, uh, there are things that I used to enjoy that are no longer, they don't feel good in my system. And that could be, you know, it's like there's whole bodies of literature. Like I used to like to read uh, certain kind of dark mystery novels. And it's like, we can't do that anymore. We, you know, our family went through uh, a bunch of people in the family really like watching The Wire. And I watched like one episode and I, I can't watch this. You know, it, it's too much like real world that I know. You know, it was extremely skillful, but it's just like, no, I don't need to eat this now. And so to let those things fall away is important. Um, Nathan. Thank you, Hosan. Uh, a question about regulating your life. Uh, there was a story, I think it was in one of Reb Anderson's books about a session where the person who was ringing the bell for waking up rung the bell an hour early. That was Mel. That was Sojin. <laughs> no, no, it was Sojin who rang the bell. <laughs> well, and, and everyone went back to sleep. And they, when they came back down at the proper time, according to the story, Suzuki Roshi was very angry um, and was angry because his lesson was the bell rings, you come to... Um, you come to sit. And I guess my question is, you know, in monastic life, the bell, the, a, a literal bell rings and you literally go to sit. Um, outside, um, you know, for lay people, um, frequently there is no bell and there is no sometimes um, thing to do uh, when, so, uh, the question is about regulating your life and um, uh, how to decide what, what it is or to do um, when there is no bell. There's always a bell. There's always a bell and the trick is to be able to hear it. And uh, just as with playing music, you know, there's, there's always a rhythm which may not be precisely laid out, but you have to find a way to attune to it. This is what we're trying to do. So to listen, it's, it's, it's easier here because there really is a bell. And yet, a lot of people come in after the bell. You know, it's hard for us to be in time, even when it's literally in time. <laughs> uh, but we do our best. Everybody is really doing their best. Just to be here today is wonderful. And to find, to hear that those bells, uh, there's another song title, Bells Are Ringing. <laughs> We we could do we could do the the whole Dharma in uh, in songs in in the titles of standards you know so anyway thank you um, Anna. so when you were talking about um, in Sashin walking side by side 
I remembered a song that people my age would remember called Side by Side. Do, do you know it? Of course. Yeah. So uh, don't know it's coming tomorrow. Maybe it's trouble and sorrow, but we'll travel the road sharing our load side by side. Uh, yeah. So Maybe that's what we are. Yeah. 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 What if the sky should fall? Right. Which it did, of course. As long as we're together, it doesn't matter at all, right? Well, that's, it matters, but good to be That's together. the lyric. That's the lyric. I know. <laughs> there's, there's wisdom in these songs. Um, anyway, yes. There's, there's another good one. Uh, Lewis Hart. Could you hear that? Should I repeat the essence? Um, just uh, anyway, Lumen's heart was reflecting on teachings that Thich Nhat Hanh had given uh, when she was at Plum Village uh, about mindful consumption about, and talking about mindful consumption of of media and information and uh, noticing when she went home and hap by happenstance. Uh, and thoughtlessness watched a, a violent TV show, how long those images stayed with us. So I think this is part of the regulation of, of one's life is to regulate the input of uh, all this sensory material. So it's like, uh, it's not just violence, it's also how we take in the news and what news we take in uh, and just recognize that anything that we take in is going to leave some kind of impression. Uh, now, sometimes we need this information in order to know how to respond appropriately, but we have to find a good balance. It's all really about finding this, this balance and being uh, just in time. Yeah, Kabir and then Karen, and then maybe we're going to have to end. Yeah. So uh, when you get that phone call saying that you cannot stay anywhere, so what can we do then? Oh, so he, Kabir is asking, when I got that phone call saying uh, one cannot stay anywhere, uh, what can you do then? You can flow. Just like, row, that's another song. That was, right, Row, 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 that's one, that was like Reb's favorite song, I think. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, this Bob Dylan song, Watch the River Flow. You know, just, sometimes we're in the boat, 
and we're rowing, we actually have to go someplace. You know, we have to row the boat across the stream. And sometimes we're just sitting at the side of the stream, watching the river flow and recognizing, merging with that flow itself, because that flow is actually, that's the flow of our minds. Karen? I went off in a slightly different direction, but when you started talking about eating, I was reminded of a talk I had privately with Sojin, where I was expressing frustration about all the greed in the world. And he said very matter-of-factly, well, it's a dog-eat-dog world. So what does one do in so, a dog-eat-dog world? Um, Karen is relating a conversation that she had with Sojin Roshi uh, about her, what pained her, what troubled her about all the greed in the world. And he said uh, to her, well, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world now. I've never seen a dog eat a dog. <laughs> Does that actually happen? What I think is, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. It's all a dog's world. <laughs> and if you want to eat, you go to the doggy diner. Remember the doggy diner? Does anyone remember that? Yeah. In San Francisco, uh, <laughs> diners. There were about four or five of them. They had big dogs on top of them. Anyway, um, yes. We have the propensity to prey on each other, to feed on each other. Uh, and I think we have the intention or aspiration to feed each other, to just reach across the table and feed each other. How can we do that? So I think that's a good question to leave you with.